In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It is a very beautiful tradition that we have and that the Church sees fit to have the solemn blessing of wine occur during the octave of Christmas. Wine has always been prized among men as the noblest of drinks and the very foundation of civilization. The pagans mused that man must have stolen it from the gods. The true religion proclaims that it was God who gave wine to us. A vineyard is the first thing we read of being planted after the flood when human society must be reestablished. The scriptures describe the Old Covenant as a vineyard planted by the Lord, and Christ tells us that he is the true vine of the New and Eternal Testament, and we the branches. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ who brings to a close Epiphany Tide by working the miracle, his very first miracle, done simply to bring joy to man by turning water into wine, recalling beautiful words of his ancestor David in the Psalms, thou hast made wine to gladden the heart of man. The apostles are filled with the Holy Ghost at Pentecost and men deride them, saying that they have had their fill of new wine. New wine indeed, this is the best wine which has been saved until now, the fullness of time, the wine of grace which we find only in the Church of Christ. This is intimately linked to the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of Jesus Christ, true God, and true man. He is true God, for as we heard from Apostle and Evangelist on Christmas Day, the Word, who was from all eternity, by whom all things were made, the shining forth of the glory of the Father, the very imprint of his divine substance. And he is true man. Throughout the ages, pagan man had dreamed of God's coming to earth in human guise, begetting children who are half God, half man. This is not the mystery we worship at Christmas time. The gods of the pagans mingled in human affairs for their own amusement. They were arrogant who would not give anything to man unless it suited their whims. St. Paul still tells the story of a different God. He was God by nature. It did not consider his divinity a thing to be clung to jealously. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becoming like us in all things but sin, and humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, And ever since then, God has exalted him, and we must acknowledge him as our king, for he is, as St. Paul says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him were all things created in heaven and on earth, all things created by him and for him. He is before all, and in him him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he 
may hold the primacy. The Church wishes to emphasize during this octave that Christmas has consequences, which is why we begin the octave of Christmas by celebrating martyrs. First, the martyr Saint Stephen, the very first of all martyrs, a martyr in word and in deed. And Saint John, celebrated in white, for he was a martyr in word, but by miracle, not so indeed. And then the Holy Innocents, martyrs not by their words, for they could not speak, but martyrs indeed in their works. This mystery of the God-man is the one which threatens Herod's of every age. And today we are reminded that Herod sometimes goes by the name of Henry. And when a Henry threatens, there is likely to be a Thomas not too far off. It seems that the providential connection between these two names was not lost on the last English king to bear the name of Henry. Henry VIII had placed all his trust in his dear friend Thomas More, whom he had appointed Lord Chancellor of England. When Thomas refused to bend to the king's plans to break with the Church of Rome, he was imprisoned and finally executed. The date was July 6th, 1535. What escapes our notice today is that July 6th was the eve of one of the most important feasts in England, the feast of another English Thomas, St. Thomas Becket. Of course, his principal feast is the one we keep today, the day of his martyrdom, December 29th. But this summertime feast was so popular that it rivaled the other in the solemnity of its celebrations and the number of pilgrims to Canterbury. As was the case with many feasts in former times, July 7th commemorated the translation of St. Thomas's relics in the year 1220 to their special shrine in Trinity Chapel and Canterbury Cathedral. When Chaucer's pilgrims would wend their way to Canterbury, the holy blissful martyr for to sake, to give thanks for deliverance from harsh winter and plague, that is what they were going to see. It would remain the greatest site of pilgrimage in England until 1538, when, after dissolving and looting all the monasteries, Henry would destroy the shrine and forbid people from so much as uttering the name of Thomas Becket. This sacrilege was an incalculable blow to all of Christendom, for Thomas Becket was no obscure English saint. He was held in the highest veneration throughout the Christian world. The oldest mosaic we have of him made shortly after his martyrdom in 1170, comes from Sicily. In order to understand why this is so, we must, I'm afraid, distance ourselves a bit from 
his Hollywood representation. I know many of you may be fond of the 1960s film about Beckett, but there is at least one serious fiction in there which we must rid ourselves of at this moment, which is that St. Thomas Beckett was not a Saxon. That is how he's portrayed in the film in order to render him more sympathetic. That is to say he was part of the lower class, part of the subjugated race, which had been laid low after the arrival of the Normans. St. Thomas Becket was, in fact, a Norman, just as much of a Norman as his sovereign, Henry II. As a Norman, he belonged then to that very hearty stock which had invaded all of Europe. They also went by the name of Vikings. But they had the characteristic of always embracing the local culture of the places they took over, and especially their religion. And so the Vikings, or Normans, who would eventually invade England and subjugate the Angles and the Saxons, by the time they arrived there, had already taken on French as their language and the Holy Catholic faith as their religion. This was true, as I say, all over Europe, even as far south as a country like Sicily. And so peoples all around Europe saw Thomas Becket as their kinsman. Thomas Becket was born on the feast of St. Thomas, that is on December 20, 21st. And once he grew up, he had his own royal Henry to deal with, the second of that name. Much as would be the case with Henry VIII and Thomas More, this Henry and this Thomas were dearest friends, and Henry made him chancellor, where he excelled in promoting all of the political goals of this king. Then Henry II had the opportunity to do something which would, be, would have been impossible in the case of Thomas More who was a married man. He had Thomas Becket, through negotiation with the Pope, ordained a priest, a bishop the next day, and then made Archbishop of Canterbury. It is told to us that before he did this, his dear friend Thomas warned him, I will not be the same man after this. Please, do not do this. Henry insisted, nevertheless, and so went forward with his plan. True to his word, Thomas underwent a profound conversion and became very quickly the king's implacable enemy. He soon resigned the chancellorship so that he could labor only for the rights of God and Holy Mother Church. In the course of his labors against the encroachments of the state on the church, he had eventually to flee England. Through the intervention of the Pope, he was finally able to return, but continued to be a menace to the king, so much so 
that several of the king's loyal men one day stormed into Canterbury Cathedral during this very octave of Christmas, December 29th in the year 1170, and cut down the archbishop just as he was singing Christmas Vespers. News of his martyrdom spread throughout Europe, and the veneration of him began at once. He was canonized scarcely two years later, and the very king of England had to do public penance and submit to public flagellation because of the role he had in the saint's death. And as for his murderers, when they finally revealed themselves and went to the Pope begging for forgiveness, they were all sentenced to 14 years of labor in the Holy Land. As we continue then to celebrate our beautiful octave of Christmas, let us place ourselves especially under the patronage of this holy saint whom the Church sees fit to have us honor during this glorious feast of our Savior's birth. Remembering that he, like all the other illustrious saints we celebrate this week, remind us that Christmas has consequences, that God is truly with us. We worship a God who is close, and therefore his rights come before all others, even those of the state. O God, in defense of whose church the glorious Bishop Thomas fell by the swords of wicked men, grant we beseech thee that all that ask his help may obtain wholesome fruit of their petition. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.